Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, and welcome back to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. On today's episode, we're chatting with Semel Shah, founder of Haystack, a pre-seed and seed stage firm based in San Francisco. Haystack has a track record investing in amazing companies such as DoorDash, Instacart, Opendoor, Figma, and Carta. Semel founded Haystack in March of 2013 and currently also is a venture partner at Lightspeed. He previously was a venture partner at both GGV Capital and Bullpen Capital. We covered a lot of ground in this episode, including the challenges he faced when trying to get into VC, how he's evolved his approach over the years, and his current and future view of the industry. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Anduin. Anduin's platform makes fund management simple with streamlined fund operations, digitized fund subscriptions, and real-time status updates. As many investors know, traditional paper-based subscription agreements are costly, tedious, and error-prone, with up to 80% of submitted documents being incorrect or considered in poor order. This causes fund managers to be faced with a lack of visibility and an endless back and forth with investors, causing a poor onboarding experience for both the LP and the fund manager. This is where Anduin steps in as their investor onboarding workflow brings clarity and efficiency to fund subscriptions, which drastically reduce error rates and makes for happier LPs. For fund managers, the platform allows them to free up time so they can focus on what they do best, which is investing. For more information on Anduin or to arrange a demo, visit fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. That's fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. Hey, Samuel, it's great to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good to see you, man. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm excited about this conversation. You and I have had so many talks over the last five to six years about venture, and there's a lot we agree on, some things we may not agree on. But let's talk about how you got into venture. I remember talking to you in the early days. You had thought about going to a big firm. You were applying to all of the Sandhill firms, ultimately decided to start your own. But let's go back in time a little bit to uh, 2000. 12, 13. What was your mindset and why you wanted to be an investor and uh, how you got your start? The, the short version is that I knew a lot of investors. I was consulting with a lot of different firms and that was really fun. And, you know, I wasn't making bank, but it was still like an economic relationship. And I was also helping a lot of founders, you know, raise funds and like just getting involved in the mechanics of the transaction, but not really participating. And so I thought, oh, it'll be super natural for me to like get in here somewhere, you know, not knowing the full business. And I think that didn't really work out the way I thought it would, given how many relationships I had. And I think looking back, it did turn into like sort of a painful blessing in disguise. But also at the time, I think it kind of makes sense now knowing how people come in, come into the industry and like what they should have going for them. Um, so, so really that sort of painful blessing in disguise turned into a situation where like two of my friends who you know, Gautam Gupta and um, Nicole Mandan, you know, really kind of pulled me aside. You know, this is like a critical point in a person's story, really. But they were just like, hey, you've got to start start a small little fund because you're not going to get, you're not, you're not going to be able to show what you can do in the current way you're doing it. And so what happened is that little first fund and that second little first fund, I think may end up hitting over 10 to $20 billion companies when it's all said and done. How big was fund one? How big was fund two? 
first fund was a million dollars. I could barely raise it. It was mostly a bunch of VCs I knew and some of their founder friends. And the second one was 3.2 million. And I got Major League Baseball to put in 500K. But it was really going, you know, there were no rolling funds. Uh, there were not many small funds this small, like, you know, compared to today as a percentage, it was not many. And I was just literally fund rate, you know, literally take 25K from one GP in the next month put 25k in the, in the company so you call it like a scout fund starter fund whatever you want to call it um i didn't know what i was doing really and so that's kind of how that started it's interesting that you bring it up 4.2 million raised across two funds you had a ton of professional experience up to that point and i always think about this and when people are starting something especially with a small fund there's high opportunity costs because there's a, a host of things that you could have done at that time no that's not true I literally had no job offers. Like I was trying to work at companies too. So it was like full on zero. So like, I would not advise my path to anybody. People sometimes contact me and they're like, oh, hey, would love to meet you or talk to you or, or email with you. I want to learn how you did. I want to do what you do. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> <laughs> you, you do not want to follow that path. It was really the only path I had. Um, but that's actually a theme we can touch on through the talk. Like, there are a lot of things I'm doing now when someone someone will say invariably to me, oh, that's really cool that you're doing that now. How, how did you think of that? Or how did you do that? And when I trace it back to like the root of how that thing started, it was always because I had no other choice. What was so difficult? I mean, I think back in, you know, this is like 2012, 13, 14. It was still the earlier days of micro VC. You were well connected. You had a presence that you were building. What was the toughest thing that you found when you were talking to these VC firms or even talking to the first group of LPs? When I was trying to like push on some of the relationships to get a get a job, the toughest things were just the patience of the process of like it just takes time. And again, now being on the inside, I know why it takes time and it makes sense. I think two is um getting to like a final stage of something and then, you know, losing it to somebody where you're like, you're close and it's just on the margin. Like I remember in one situation, the head honcho of a firm who, who I'm still very close with called me and said, Hey, we're going with this woman. And, you know, really sorry that I have to call you with that. And I looked up her profile and I was like, Oh, like I would hire her too. You get it. Me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I get it. And then when you say LPs, you know, what was difficult? Do you mean like meeting institutional LPs or just like trying to meet high net worths and other people? Well, I think it's a little bit of both. But I know that, you know, with the first fund being a million dollars, and I, I don't know what your target was, but it, let's assume that it was sub $5 million. You kind of knew that it wasn't the institutional crowd that was going to invest. And it was the individuals and families and other GPs that wanted to support you based on your relationship, what was the hard part of like just getting in front of those type of groups, especially the individuals? It was very easy to go to individuals because it was like, hey, I'd like to do this. And some people are supporting me. And, you know, it's like people are investing 25 to 50K or something. I, I will say it was non trivial for me to like commit my own capital to that fund. Like I didn't have 25K. So I was like, doing all these side jobs and hustles to like put that together. So that was a non-trivial thing for me at that time too. 
And but by the way, the reason I point that out is I think a lot of people just assume, like from the outside, that like, oh, you can do this and you do that and you start those things, like, or you you must have had money. There are a lot of people who start these things who they don't they don't have money. I am also a believer you have to put skin in the game, so you have to find some way to save cash and put it together. As it relates to meeting institutional LPs, I only really tried to do that for the first time in Fund 3. And that was in 2015. And we could go deep into that. That was a real education because that was the first time, you know, when I raised the first fund, I tried to raise a million, I raised a, a million. Actually, funny story there is there's an LP who fell off the face of the earth, put in 30, 30K into that fund. That 30K may turn into like a lot of money and he's never reclaimed it. And I'm not allowed to buy it. So it's just been sitting there at 970. The fund two, I tried to raise, uh, I think 10, no, five, five to 10. I can't remember. Only raised 3.2. Fund three, I tried to raise 20. And this is when I went to the institutional LPs. I ended up at 8.2. Uh, a lot of like funny stories there, but definitely the intention when I was building the slide deck was like, oh yeah, like I'm going to go pitch some institutional VCs. Now looking back on it, it's comically hilarious, but you know, in the moment it was like, uh, yeah, I'll go do that. And, and you were at a time, like I remember 2015 institutionals were starting to back managers, but there was still this, you're really building a fund now that's five, six, seven times what you did last time, different check sizes. Can you compete at a higher level? You're a solo GP, which at the time was, and of course now it's much more accepted back then it wasn't, but yet take us inside baseball a little bit. You're out there pitching to these institutions and you're out there and you're like, look, I have two funds. The performance is early, but got into some great companies. I think you were in Hashi Corp and a, and a few other companies at that time that people were starting to understand that were really high performing companies, what were they asking you? And like, where did you feel like you might've tripped up? In fund three, it just, at that time of 2015, there wasn't enough of like a track record for a more institutional investor from like, let's say a spectrum of like an informal family office all the way to like, the formality of a university endowment. There wasn't enough meat on the bone in terms of like looking at the performance over time. It didn't really make sense. And there was nothing in my profile which would say, oh, let's give him some money. Like it just made sense to just not really engage. So I think the thing I did that worked really in my favor is in that fund, I very quickly realized that um, these are relationships I need to cultivate and they're not going to convert now. So start getting to meet people, start trying to help them, start sending them other fund flow, start tell, like taking reference calls for other people and actually build a network of LPs because in order to like have some relationships, you'll have some kind of network. And then in some of them, you'll, you'll get to know them as people. And then I, I, I try to learn their business model and I spend time with them. And I think in the same way, some of the VCs earlier spent time with me and got insights from me and enjoyed spending time with me, hopefully. Um, I think maybe the LPs felt the same way over time. It's not like it converted the next fund either. We can go to that. 
that was the intent of fun three. And again, I kind of pivoted midstream where I was like, okay, that's not happening. So I just need to go meet these people. We see this a lot. And in, in, in today's world, we're seeing a ton of these nano funds, right? That are raising five, 10, 15, some doing it part-time through things like rolling funds. And some of them are going to look to graduate or, or want to graduate to raising bigger funds. And we're seeing a few people do that right now. But there are some questions that I see sometimes that the institutionals are looking at. And, and they're looking at things like, okay, your, your strategy worked when you were writing 50 to $100,000 checks. Does it really work at 250 or 500? Do you really understand the nuances of portfolio construction? When you went from fund two to fund three, fund three to fund four, and it sounds like fund four was still a small fund, what were their main concerns for you as you were making that jump from fund to fund to fund? What I'll say is in fund three, the, the problem was not enough of a profile, not enough of time in the track record. Anyone who looks at the track record now of one and two, they'd be like, wow, you know, but again, it's a small base. So you have to discount it a little bit. In fund four, the main thing that tripped me up was like having a real good, not answer on portfolio construction, but an answer and an ability to converse about portfolio construction. And I think this is why most institutional investors do not like backing first-time investors. They like backing a first-time manager if they've already been an investor, because this is something you cannot just go teach or you can't learn. It's not that it's rocket science, but it's also just something that seeps into how you behave. It doesn't, it's not something you go on a silent retreat for seven days and you come out understanding portfolio construction. So that's what really tripped up fund four. I also had, um, I call these like omens. Like I had a very early ominous omen in the fundraise of 17, which like shifted me into a new gear because I thought, oh, you know, fund three was hard and I, you know, I got all this feedback and I met all these people and I built relationships. So when it converts to four, like I should be okay, right? And I remember this one woman who headed up an endowment, she's no longer there. I had met her through senior GPs at Greylock, who I was friends with, introduced me to this woman. So I was like, how can you get a better intro than that, right? So I met her, visited her, she visited me, we, we did all this stuff. And then um, she was at, I started my fundraise in January 2017 for Fund 4. She was at the Rosewood at Greylock's annual meeting. And I knew that the annual meeting was going on and I lived right down the street. So I emailed her and I said, hey, uh, sorry to ambush you, but I know you're up the street for three days. So I can either come to the drinks or whatever, or they'd be cool with that. And uh, she just writes back, sorry, trip is really full, sent from my iPad. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you know, I'm glad that happened in January because that really scared the crap out of me. Portfolio construction is always one of those debated topics. And we were on a thread, I think the other day on Twitter with Roger Ehrenberg and Leo and a few other people. My opinion is there's different ways to make money. There's models that I think align with a particular GP, right? And so you look at a model like SV Angel or YC, where it's a lot of companies, smaller ownership in, in, some, in some cases. And there's other folks that are more focused on a fewer checks, higher ownership, 
and having a lot of the fund and follow on. The interesting thing about you is you've ran these different fund sizes, and I'm sure your portfolio construction model has evolved. But you've also been a venture partner at currently Lightspeed and before GGV. How have those experience shaped how you think about portfolio construction? What's your methodology? On portfolio construction, I would never say there's one way to do it. And so that's why I was saying earlier, I'll I'll try to tackle your questions in, in order. It's not like, oh, Samir and Samil can go run, you know, a week-long course at a winery, although that would be fun, uh, uh, just on portfolio construction. It's not going to help people. My theory is actually you need to, you need to either work inside a fund where you get exposed to other people doing that sort of apprentice style, or you need to write a bunch of checks and have a couple of starter funds so that you can get burned and then you learn through the pain. I want to make this point. It's not like you would go to the seven-day retreat that Samir and Samil run and learn portfolio construction. The goal is that you figure out a model that works for you, and then you're able to stand behind it conversationally with someone who knows their business. So in the same way that like when a founder comes to us, or we have a founder in our portfolio and they're going out to raise a larger round. And let's say they want to raise seven or they want to raise 10 and 15. And they say, Samuel, what should we raise? And I say, you tell me what you want to raise. And then you have to stand behind that when you go into the market. It's the same thing with portfolio construction. If you're a fund manager and you want to do a $42 million fund, that's fine. The problem is you just need to stand behind that number. And the way you stand behind that number when you fundraise is you show them the model in which you're going to deploy and manage it. And it becomes even more real if you've done it before. The problem, I think, for LPs is that having a track record that's somewhat consistent in terms of deployment and having this kind of 360 conversation around the topic gives them comfort that you're going to do what they what you say you're going to do because there's no disciplinary function to focus on. There's nothing else except your own GP putting that restriction on themselves. Now, your second question about like the GGB and Lightspeed stuff, this is a very unique because part of the story is when I started, I became a venture partner at Bullpen. Then I became a venture partner at GGV, and then I became a venture partner and still am at Lightspeed. And I credit all those firms with just being one super generous with me and inviting me, but also like being very creative about the structure. Because the funds were so small, I was able to do that and get away with it, I think. What I learned there was a little bit different from portfolio construction. The things I learned there that were interesting were like, how do people consider follow-on investing across stages? Um, how do people manage investments across funds? How do people set up fundraises like in the future, create data rooms in the future? Um, all this stuff that like very professional organizations do, you know, is just learning that. So with Bullpen, they were just kind of starting and, and growing up. GGV, you know, already had billions under management. I think their finance team grew from like five to 15 when I was there because they were scaling. And then, you know, Lightspeed is one of the few like truly global VC franchises. So it's been great just to see how individual deal makers at those funds operate, you know, and just learning from them and then 
as a fund as a whole, like how they operate their business, build their portfolios, manage their portfolios. So yeah, it's just as a student of the game, it's fun to see. Yeah, it's it's hard sometimes to think about. You see Lightspeed, which is billions and billions of AUM, same with GGV, and understand how those firms have anything that is similar to a fund that's raising 50 or 100 million. Were there things that you pulled out specifically that translate well to running a seed stage firm that's sub $100 million? I would say no, because I think of seed as a different asset class. And most of the people who are successful in seed wouldn't be successful in sort of big box retail venture and vice versa, likely. It's more art than science. It's more broad than deep. On a deal-making basis, I try not to uh, take too much from those firms. I think, um, you know, there are little things I remember, like little things you would remember from a mentor. Like Paul Martino would always say something like, we underwrite one miracle. You know, so when an entrepreneur would come in and say, hey, we're going to do this, and then we're going to throw the ball up here, and it's going to do a bank shot, and then it's going to twirl around the rim, and then (laughs) hit the backboard again, and then fall in. You know, after the entrepreneurial leave, Martino would say, that was three miracles. It's out. And then um, Glenn at GGV um, would always say, you have to manage your momentum up and to the right. So that could be a round or your funds or um, a- any sort of financing. So he would always encourage entrepreneurs to say, like, you always want to have your next round be an up round because you want to manage the psyche of the people. You want to make your current investors feel good. and so that that I take. So there's a lot of things I take, but in terms of like how to go pick at seed, I mean, definitely sometimes they help me like validate, especially on the light speed side, validate like the technical acumen uh, of a particular founder. But um, when it comes to the actual investing, I try to just stay very true to like the one-on-one interaction with the founder, but probably more on like the management side. I think about. I agree with you that seed is its own asset category within venture. And I think about growth and crossover, and then you have the traditional 150 to $500 million Series A, Series B firms. And then, of course, Seed, which is the smallest from a dollar standpoint, although I'd argue that the amount deployed by Seed managers is understated because of those SPVs and the capital that they're deploying further outside of the fund. But within the Seed market, there's so many managers, you know this, and you, you've mentored a lot. I think I've seen about 850 decks since 2014 alone. And there's always this notion of, does the world need another seed fund? And what does it mean to be truly differentiated? That's not the right question, whether we need a new seed fund. Is it good for the ecosystem? Where is the innovation market going? I think these are all good things. But what's your take on differentiation? Do you need to be differentiated as a seed manager? And what does it actually mean to be truly differentiated in a, in a way that truly matters for founders? I struggle with this question, so my answer may be kind of annoying to, to you or the audience. I, I think like differentiation is sort of like it's in the eye of the beholder in the same way that you may say, oh, you know, this woman or this person, this man is very attractive and maybe really ugly to the next person. I don't know. Um, I think that um, it's probably been overplayed as as like a thing. 
it, it's an easy way to screen out something and just say, I've seen a bunch of these and they all look the same to me. That's the same way of saying it's not differentiated. But then also if someone does something really differentiated, they're going to get slapped by the LP community, you know? Um, so, so what does that really mean? Uh, then there are people who differentiate on a venture model, but the entrepreneurs don't care. Then there are other people who differentiate based on an angle or geo or this, and the LPs don't really care. So I just think it's turned into like one of these third rail political terms in, in the in the world of venture. Like, I, I just don't know what it means anymore. If I were like running a huge endowment somewhere, running a family office and trying to do stuff, I'd be basically trying to do three things. I try to get into the best uh, names that I know of like some big box retail, some classic series A and B firms, and be thinking about not differentiation, but just like accessing networks. And so to me, I just think like a portfolio is, is like, ends up becoming partly the reflection of somebody's network, social network. Uh, that's how these deals happen. And so to me, the differentiating piece would be is how do I go ground truth and investigate this person's network? Because ultimately what I'm buying is some portion of what they convert from their network into the portfolio. So even if their strategy is the same, like how's Roger Ehrenberg and IA Ventures differentiated, they're just really good, but they do the same thing, right? So maybe their network is just poised in this way that gives them this unfair advantage. I don't know. Like, I mean, you know, they're just cited as, you know this, we all know this, pound for pound, the best seed fund, period. Or is it that differentiated? I don't know. But it, everyone I know would love to be an LP in the fund. So, so I think people have like over-rotated on this term. And to me, the underlying thing is, does, does anything that you're saying in your deck or anything in like, does it matter to like what you have access to? Because if you have a good strategy or an innovative model or this and that, and your network is weak or your network is sucks, sorry, um, it's just going to be crap in the portfolio. There's something that you said in there. And for me, I've heard this term differentiation. It's largely driven by LPs that, you know, are looking at these managers and saying, what makes you different? And I hear, but I've done so many reference checks for GPs and I have these LPs that say, Samir, what makes them differentiated? And it's, it's a hard question because I don't know what they're actually looking for. Now, what they're really looking for is some type of tangible evidence that this person has an edge. And my view is, the better question is, is the GP playing a game they can win? And so when you think about your own model, how do you know, how did you figure out what game you were going to win? Or the considerations of this is the lane I'm going to play in? This is a good question, but I also have to stop and give you a compliment because before we started, I asked you permission to like disagree with you if I needed to. And I love disagreeing with you because I love just kind of rallying you up. But I... 110% agree with you begrudgingly on what you just said. So how did I decide? So so I will share a little bit of that and also give you a story that's like very real. One is that I was always constrained by fund size, by check size, you know, so I slowly had to kind of build up. So we'll go back to our buddy Duvos, you know, Duvo spent a lot of time with me early. Like I have to give him credit. Like we would meet at um, 
the creamery in Palo Alto. And then we would walk and he would get like a 42 ounce thing of like a, what, what is it from 7-Eleven? It was like a Coke. And then there was like some slush stuff. And it was just like, you know, he spent a lot of time with me. And so he the whole big thing was like, crawl, walk, run. Crawl, walk, run. And so 25K check, 50K check, 100K check, 250K check. I took years to make that progression. Okay. Even going to where I'm now at like million dollar checks took a long time. Right. First million dollar check was maybe five years after the first check. That's, that's number one. Number two is that very early in fund one, I had like an insane number of like very important markups by like very good funds. And what happened is something interesting happened when the Instacart, Instacart was like the third investment I'd ever made or something like that. Um, all these VCs that I had known or looked up to or like tried to ask for a job, they were calling me saying, Hey, we'd like to, we'd like you to put in a word with the perv on this round. And I didn't know what that meant of like positioning around around and like calling in favors and like all the deal making stuff that happens in a competitive round, you know, so I would just say, sure. Yeah. So I'd email a perv and say, Hey, I know you're talking to blank and blank and I think they're great. But then I started thinking like, why are those people calling me to get into that round? And as I reflected on that, I was like, wow, it really is a zero sum game to, to win the right to win a competitive deal, sit on the board with the entrepreneur. And um, like, I think, I think Apurva had like eight term sheets, maybe more. And that was the, uh, what, Series A? Series A, yeah. And, and, and so I think there was just a like, whoa, stay in your lane. Like, if you want to work at one of these big funds, the only path you have is to compete for that kind of deal. And, and it seemed to me so zero sum. And it struck me over time that I was better at maybe building a basket of things that would then be picked off at A rather than being the person who picks off from the basket at A. You've taught, you know, Mike Maples really well. You know, he's been disciplined in his fund sizes. He's always said, your fund size is your business model. Right now, there's a ton of capital that's flowing into venture, direct deals, funds. And you have these institutionals that often push small seed funds to bigger and bigger and bigger sizes. Do you think that a lot of that LP capital truly actually destroys value for the other LPs because you're forcing it in some ways, GP, or you're tempting them to raise bigger and bigger funds at the trade-off of moving them outside of their lane? I wouldn't fault the LPs there. Uh, I would certainly fault the LPs on other things, but if you're a fund manager or a GP partnership raising a fund, you have control over how big it is. No one is telling an entrepreneur to go raise a $100 million Series A from you know some huge fund that'll give them whatever they want. No one's, no one's forcing them to do that. So I just don't buy that as a, as a thing. I think that like, there are plenty of counter examples of people who stay true to the model they think that works for them. I'm sure they have other LPs that would pick up the slack if they did a smaller fund and lost some people. So 
Yeah, but I think it's also really tough to be disciplined when there's so much capital being thrown in front of you. And even for entrepreneurs, the difficulty is if the money's there and the money's cheap, you often take it, which then has its own particular consequences. And if you look at the average seed round, for example, today versus what it was, I think in the past, maybe five, six, seven years ago, we were looking at a million to a million five. It was what pre-seed is now. And now you're seeing seed rounds that are three to five million. To me, those are just, those are the A rounds. Yeah. But you have seed funds playing that role, right? They're investing in that. They're calling it seed. Nomenclature aside for a second, though, the one thing that always comes up in today's world, especially since the pandemic started, is valuations have risen to a point where they're divorced from what people would think makes sense from a fundamental analysis standpoint. Now, what we've also seen is the redefinition of what the size of venture exits are, right? Like you look at companies like Stripe or Zoom or Coinbase and Airbnb and the list goes on. What's your belief in when you're reserving that early real, like you just said, real estate, early real estate, does valuation truly matter when you have conviction? And have we permanently redefined what a venture exit can be in terms of a company exit size? Yes, the end markets have pulled the, the justification pr- provided by the end markets being way bigger than anyone thought and continuing to get bigger. The whole market undervalued that. Uh, combined with all these other things like zero interest rates and all the stuff we talk about online. We, everyone knows that. So for an early stage fund, you're asking, does it matter? Does the ownership matter? Does the valuation matter? I think the answer is yes and no, right? Like, of course, the amount of money you put in, the pr- entry price per share, the ownership that you have, oh, they all matter as important levers. But what I think sits on top of that as being even more important is, are you in the right basket of things for your size? Because if you're not, it's pretty dangerous, right? Um, so, so there could be an entrepreneur. Like we have an entrepreneur right now. We met a couple times last year and he was noodling on all these things. But he's just one of those people you meet where it's like rapid iteration, rapid product market fit brain and like very technical and like he built something new this year and he's raising now and like i know he's gonna raise four to five million bucks as a single founder um and that just means it's gonna be 15 to 25 posts somewhere and it doesn't really make sense but then what you really have to do is say how many other people have i met with these types of skills in the last year, very little. So you make exceptions, right? I, I, The way I think about it for Haystack, which is a $50 million fund is, we have to just first find people we want to work with and be along for their ride. And some of that's going to be at five posts, some's going to be at 15, and a couple may be at 30. By having a small fund, we want to be, most of the positions be true to what we promise, which is five to 10 points of ownership, ability to hold across a couple of rounds if things work. Uh, but of course, we will make some exceptions. It's just that with a smaller fund, we can make fewer exceptions. So we have a few uh, special shots on goal, we call them, um, you know, but they're not 
it's not the norm. Now, the bigger the fund, you can do more of that stuff. And this is where some of the creep comes up. Because if you, if I had a $50 million fund today, and then in six years, I had a $150 million fund and the market was the same way, I could be sitting here and telling you, Samir, well, 12 and a half posts and 25 posts, it doesn't really matter if I pick the right founder. And that's kind of true. But if you do that on every deal, right, you have to put more dollars to work. And the problem is right now is like most founders are very dilution target sensitive. Like they're managing that up front now. And so it's very, very difficult to pull that off. The other thing I would say, and I'll, I'll credit Fred Gafrida from Horsley Bridge, who at an event I was hosting mentioned this. He said that when they're looking at seed managers, one of the things they're really evaluating is, one, what do you put in the basket? I'm paraphrasing for him, right? What from your network will come into the basket? And then two, once it's in the basket, how will you make that second investment decision? And he feels that second investment decision is what will separate like cream from the crop, right? In terms of um, some of the newer seed managers. And for clarity, the second investment decision is what? The follow-on or is it making the assessment of when you make an, ex- an exception to whatever your parameters are? Yeah, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example. We funded a company. September 2020, it was one of the situations where in the meeting, I decided in 10 minutes, like, I want to work with these people. So we let, we led the seed deal. We don't lead every deal, but I led this deal. Um, very fair, standard seed deal. And then it just took off. <laughs> and we introduced them to their uh, eventual Series A partner. We're friends with them. It was a great fit and it was a huge round. And so within the span of a few weeks, I was forced with this decision of like, okay, we put in a million at a low valuation, uh, relatively low valuation. And then all of a sudden I'm being asked to write 1.7 something in this next round. No, I didn't have to do it. But what Fred was sort of saying is like, hey, Samil, like whispering in my ear, like the decision you make around this, it's going to define you one way or the other. And and I, I, I recommend people listen to the David Z podcast that he did with Harry Stebbings a few months ago. And David, I was lucky to spend a lot of time with David. Also, like Duvo spent a lot of time with me and was very generous. And like what, what David says in this podcast is, for, he he was sort of answering a question to Harry about like what does he see in people who who rise up in, in investing, and he said it's easy to bring in deals, it's easy to recommend a good deal over a bad deal, it's easy to like pick out of the one or two that's going to be the best deal, but he said when those kind of decisions come up of like do we double down, do we pick one company over the other on the margin, he's like you have to make the call, and the call just sticks with you. And it's, it's really hard to do that when you understand the stakes. You know, five years from now, I could look really smart writing 2.75 in this one company, you know, which is over, over a decent amount of money for a $50 million fund, or I could look like a donkey. I think what you're mentioning is, is actually pretty underrated. What I've seen and just talking to a lot of LPs and GPs is where a 1x or a 2x fund can be a 5x or the other way around is based on those follow-on decisions that you do make. And also, when you actually divorce from 
whatever parameters and you make those exceptions. How do you make those exceptions? Are you making the right exceptions? When do exceptions become rules, right? And it's, it's such a fascinating thing to talk about, but you know, I've seen so many things over the years. That is one thing that I've seen of the best managers. They know when to be disciplined and when to flex their discipline. 100%. Like if Roger, if you were asking like this specific question of Roger, like the answer would be like clinical, right? I, and I'm, I don't want to sit here and say like I've mastered that part. I'm going through that now. You know, that's the reality. But I can definitely say with assurance, like, it's the toughest part. Like, finding that deal wasn't hard. Leading it wasn't that hard. Helping the entrepreneur wasn't that hard. Like, it was a great situation. And, like, we really like the founders a lot. Like, you know, it's just a good relationship. That decision in those three weeks was hard because it was new. That's what does separate being a let's say a uh, second quartile manager from being a top to maybe even a top decile. So I really like that. Today we're sitting here, thousands of seed firms out there. We're seeing valuations where they are. We've seen the outcomes of these companies. What is your 30,000 foot view of venture capital today? If you were to sum it up in a paragraph or two. It went from cottage industry to consensus industry. Everybody wants tech equities. And so people who are selling tech equities, it's a seller's market. And people have realized that, I guess, cliche to say accelerated, you know, put under a microscope and accelerated via the pandemic. Everyone sees that software is not like a sector. It's just seeping into everything. And if you're insight, you know, and you have a $12 billion fund and some great entrepreneur comes in and says, I'm raising at 15 or 25 million post money or 35, you don't care at that point. It's just really about assessment and access. So I think it went from cottage to consensus. And if you follow that line of logic, you could say out of the consensus, the returns overall will go down and people who make correct and non-obvious investment choices will win. I mean, the poster child for that is Union Square Ventures, right? You can just look at the record online date stamped of like, oh, we bought Bitcoin. We're reading about Bitcoin. We're reading about Ethereum. We're participating in that work, receiving these funds. We're doing all this stuff. We invested in Coinbase. We're doing layer two stuff. We're seeding all these managers. And by the time the Coinbase IPO runs around, you know, they're on to the next thing. So, you know, who does that? Not very many. It's hard because to invest against the crowd and be right puts you at risk of investing against the crowd and be wrong. And no one wants to be in that quadrant. It's much easier to invest with the crowd and be right or wrong. So on this note too, like I think there's a bifurcation in the market. Like today's market when it's a consensus company, right? So so tech and software as a sector is a consensus sector. But within it, if someone's fighting to get into whatever round, you see massive valuation accumulation because like once it's consensus, everyone has the same data and they're trying to get in. So for, for us as a small little blip on the radar of all these funds, you know, we have to invest in things, not so much to say that other people don't want, but it just has to be earlier. I kind of say like, we're, we're not investing in cool kids. We're investing in kids we think can be cool. And that's the opportunity for seed, right? Is like, you make, you make not cool kids cool. Let's go into our last section. You've been doing this almost a decade. 
what is the most counterintuitive lesson in being just a VC? Like as you get deeper into it, it's a system of thinking that you have to adopt and it ends up permeating every other part of your life. I don't know if that's counterintuitive, but I think just people think like, oh, you're just an investor or just to do things and you, you're not really helping or like everyone just says, oh, you got to just help the companies. There's just a lot of other stuff you have to do. And the company piece is, and the, the helping the founders is just one bit of it. I think of it as go back, like there's this, there's this famous um, political science teacher, more on the tactical side, um, called Steve Jarding. And he used to run a, he used to run a class called like, a, it was called Winning Elections. And so he would help a lot of people who were going into Congress or wanted to become congressmen or women on how to build a political campaign and, and win an election. And actually, it's very similar to being an investor. You have to go get a message. You have to go into the market. You have to go meet constituents. You have to keep repeating the message. You have to gather fans, gather support, gather email addresses. You have to go to a lot of you know barbecues, state fairs, all that kind of stuff. And it's all for different constituencies. You have to do some of that with LPs. You have to do some of that with co-investors. You have to do some of that with founders. But really, at the end of the day, there's only one result at the end of the election. And and how it maps to investing is, did you get into a great company? Are you friends with these founders and can you keep investing with them? Do other follow-on investors still want to take your call? And so it's a constant 24-7 game that just goes much deeper than sitting with the founder and helping them and tweeting about it. From our, our perspective, I mean, I had Charles Hudson on you know early in the show and he said, it's basically three jobs in one, right? You're, yeah. you're basically doing a little bit of everything. I think people overrate the time or at least overestimate the time they're going to do spending with founders and underestimate all the other things that go on. Totally makes sense. Now, you and I have talked about a lot of different investors during this conversation. With all of your relationships, what have you found to be one of the most underrated characteristics of successful VCs? I, I think there are just some people who have a nose for things intellectually. Um, and I've, I've seen this in specific investors where they just have a nose for what a good opportunity is more often than not. And I don't know how that is. I honestly don't know how that happens. But 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 what's the underrated care? I think it's just like taste and, and a lot of reading and thinking. Uh, but like, if you look at the folks at USV like we talked about before, or like you look at someone like Hans from DGV, you look at Ravi from Lightspeed, or, or, or like, um, you know, just some other people people don't know about, like Robin Vassan, who, who's now doing Mango Capital. Their just hit rate on things is insane. I, I don't understand it. I wish I had an answer for you. I, I think it's just that nose. It, maybe it goes back to wine, right? Like, you know, they take a sip and before they take a sip, they can smell all the flavors. And then when they take a sip, they can taste what's going on in a way that I don't think most people can. Not this time, but at some point, it'd be under, good to understand, like, what got them to a point where they got this nose for deals? Like, is it genetic? Is it just the way they're hardwired? Or is it some type of exercise that they do? I think it's genetic. Fred mentioned that like they look for like an investor gene in somebody. 
And when I heard that, it really resonated with me because I think that like genes can be kind of silent and then expressed, right? But I don't think you can just have it be like grafted onto your DNA. And so I think it's just a gene that, you know, hopefully for me as expressed, I think in these other people we mentioned, it's already been uh, there. Yeah, it's interesting to think about it within their own genetic coding. So last question, um, of all these incredible individuals that you've been a part of, you've learned from a lot of folks, is there an investor that you've met, come across that particularly like inspires you? I mean, if you can point to one person, what, what is it about that that inspires you? I've been very lucky, like most people maybe don't even know, or even you, you don't even know. I got to spend a lot of time, like literally sitting next to some great investors who I don't know why gave me a bunch of time. So I could give you a long list. I think for me personally, the North Star I always talk about with Haystack is like, could Haystack one day become, let's say a baby version of IA Ventures? And I think like the thing, not so much to be like the best pound for pound fund, because I think that would be pretty hard to do, but it's obviously an aspiration. But I think the way Roger, Brad, Jesse work is like a way I want to work. You know, anyone who spent time with Roger in particular knows like, if you ask him a question, he'll like give you the most literal answer right back. Like you're the only person in the room. I remember he'll stand right in front of you face to face and give you the answer. And I think that like his intensity around decision-making and discipline and compounding his investment and ownership in a company is just like super impressive. I mean, uh, and not to take anything away from Brad and Jesse. I mean, I think they do the same thing. It's just I've seen it with Roger more up front. And so I would say like internally in discussions or internally amongst friends and people say like, yeah, what's the model or who are you trying to graft from a little bit? You know, it'd be Roger. Yeah, that, that's certainly not a bad aspirational person to uh, to work around. And we had it, Roger, on it. You're 100% right. Very direct, very thoughtful. They're like, this is what we do. This is how we're going to do it. It's not for everybody, but we know what we're good at. I, uh, I, yeah, I appreciate those comments. This has been fun, man. I, I also love having these conversations. We didn't disagree on much this time, which... Uh, <laughs> we'll do it for version two. <laughs> we'll do it for version two, but thanks again for being on. Good to see you. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Semmel and Haystack, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out and hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every episode as soon as it's released. Don't forget to go to ventureunlock.substack.com for all of the updates on the podcast as well as my blogs in the venture capital industry.